0: Well, good morning. It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys. (laughs) As you make your way back to your seat, welcome. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis uh, chapter 6. And so if this is your first time here, welcome. We are so excited uh, that you're here with us uh, today. Uh, What we do at our church the first Sunday of every month is... It's family service, which means we get to sit together as a family and we get to open up God's Word and I get to create wonderful conversations between you and your children as you make your way back home Um, and you're going to say, thanks a lot, Neil, but that's okay because my, my my child is here as well. So um, let me pray for us, because we got lots of work to do. If you know what passage we're going to be in, you know exactly uh, what's in store for us. And so uh, we're going to have to try to navigate through some rocky waters here and keep it PG, okay? Uh, so, so let me pray for us. Uh, let's ask the Lord to reveal truth to us, to stir our hearts, so we may have ears to listen, eyes to see, a mind to understand, and a heart to be transformed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you uh, that we can gather to worship you, Lord. And it's not because we've done anything. It's because you have initiated and saving us and redeeming us and making us your people. And you have gathered us so that we can worship you, Lord. And you are central to everything that we do. And Lord, as we open up your word and as we hear what you have to say to us, Lord, can you help us to see? Can you help us to understand? Can you help us to listen and pay attention, Lord? And can the words that come from your word, can it speak to our hearts? Can it pierce us, convict us and help us to look to you and trust you and walk out of here saying, what a wonderful God we have that is gracious and saving us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. If you're familiar with Genesis, we probably come to a part of Scripture um, that's probably one of the most difficult passages to talk about in all of Genesis. And so one of the things I've always tried to do um, in teaching our children, teaching the adults from Sunday morning, um, and also in life group, is we really want to teach you how to study God's Word for yourself, because that's important. Like, you need to study God's Word. And so as I'm proclaiming God's Word, I am showing you what the Word says, but there are certain principles that we need. To understand when it comes to studying God's Word. And so, when we come to difficult passages, one of the things we have to understand is one of the most important things that we need to do is when we address a difficult passage that we don't really understand, we always need to go to the context, okay? Uh, So, if you want to write a word down, write context, and then you can ask me, what in the world does it mean? What does context mean? Okay, so real quick, here's what context means. It is the surrounding story that we find our passage in. So for example, let let, picture this in your mind. I'm showing you a very close-up picture of a tree. You can see its bark, its branches, its leaves, but that's all you can see. You can't really see what type of tree it is. You can't see the location of the tree or how many trees there are. Because you have a closer picture of this tree, and that's all you can see. So in order for you to, add, to answer the question, what type of tree it is, where's its location, what do you have to do? You have to step back, or you have to zoom out. And by zooming out, then you'll be able to answer the question, what type of tree is it, where is it located, how many trees are there? That is what we say is context. So, for us to understand the passage, we have to look at the context, which means we need to zoom out before we can zoom back in. Everybody understand that? Okay. So, as we get to chapter 6, the question is, what's the immediate context of our passage? So the immediate context of our passage is genealogies. You're like, what is genealogy? That's a family tree where you see where you come from. This is my dad, and this was his dad, and this was his dad, and this was his dad. That's called a genealogy. And every time we read about a genealogy in the Bible, we are reminded that God has blessed humanity because he told them to get married, have lots of babies, and by doing that, you're ruling over God's creation and so in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 we see two types of genealogy the first type of genealogy we see is that of Cain now does everybody know the story of Cain okay what did Cain do Cain killed his brother Abel which was Cain a good guy no he was actually the very first guy that was cursed and so his genealogy and all of his children were wicked people Like one of the last people we read about in this genealogy, his name was Lamech. He had two wives, and then he bragged about killing a guy. And he said, anybody who's going to want to fight me, you better watch out because I'm bigger and stronger than everybody. That's the kind of kids he had. And then we come to chapter 5, and we read about another genealogy, the genealogy of Seth. Now, Seth's kids had a different reputation. Seth's son was Enosh, and he was known for calling upon the name of the Lord. In other words, he was known for, for creating worship. And as he was worshiping, his kids were worshiping God. And then later on, part of uh, the, the genealogy of Enosh came a guy whose name was Enoch. And he had a reputation of Walking with God. And he was so close to God that God said, you're not going to die, but I'm going to take you from death. But here's the problem. Both Cain's genealogy and Seth's genealogy had one thing in common. They all died because they all have sinned. And even though we can see Cain's genealogy saying, that is a bad genealogy, they are filled with wicked people. We see Seth's genealogy saying, these were godly, upright, righteous men. But yet they still sinned. Okay, everybody understand the context? What's the context of chapter 6? Genealogies. What's the two genealogy? The genealogy of Cain and the genealogy of Seth. Was Cain's genealogy good? No. Was Seth's genealogy good? But did both of them sin? Yes. Okay. Now we come to our passage in chapter six, okay? Now, as I'm gonna read chapter six, here's another trick I wanna teach you about studying God's Word. What's the first trick I taught you? When we study God's Word, what's the big thing we need to look at? Context. The second thing we need to do is we first need to explain what is the simple things to understand? Like, what is the main thing it's communicating to us? Once we can answer that, then we can get into the things that we say, you know what, I don't really understand. So let's be able to explain what's clearly in the passage, and then the parts that are not so clear, then we can address that, okay? And the problem that most of us make, including adults, is we neglect what is plain in the passage, and we focus on the obscure parts, the parts that don't make any sense. And then we kind of miss out what God has to teach us. So let's focus on the main thing that God has to teach us and then we can get into the questions we have, okay? Let's look at chapter 6 here. It says this, When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took and they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards. And when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, they were the powerful men of old, the famous men. Now again, what's the temptation here? The temptation is to go to the parts we don't understand. Who's the son? I shouldn't even say that. What should we focus on? What is clear in this passage? So, what do we find out that is clear in the passage? Look at verse one. It's being reported that people are multiplying. And do we remember the context? What's the context of chapter four, chapter five? genealogies family trees so in other words what the passage is teaching us is that more people are getting married and more people are having babies and what happens when more people get married and more people have babies do you have more people or less people you have more people which means they call it that that's what the Bible says the multiplying of the earth in other words the population is increasing more people are existing okay so that's the first thing we see. But then, the second thing we see also that's really clear is look at verse 3. When God sees more people coming, how does God respond? Is He happy or sad? He's kind of sad. Look at verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. So in other words, as more people is, are increasing... It seems like God is sad because he is saying people are corrupt. So if you're taking notes, I think here's the very first main point we see in our passage is this. What we see clearly is with the increase in people, there is an increase of evil. With the increase of people, there is an increase of evil. So we look at verse 1. It says that more people are having babies, more people are getting married, and then we see in verse 3 that God says, My spirit's not going to be with them forever because they are corrupt, so I'm only going to let them live 120 years. That is very clear in Scripture, okay? And that's what we see, and that's the main point, okay, in this passage so, so far. But now we got to come to the parts that we don't understand, the parts that are kind of difficult, okay? So it almost seems like there's these two groups. You have the sons of God marrying the daughters of men. And God looks at this and says, mm, this is not good. These people are corrupt. And then in verse 4, we read about a people called the Nephilim. It's almost as if the sons of God are getting married to the daughters of men, and then all of a sudden these people, the Nephilim, are coming. And we don't know if they're good or bad, but they're powerful men, men of old. So the question we have to ask ourselves is okay, who's the sons of God? Who's the daughters of men? And who's the Nephilim? Are you guys ready for this? I'm not. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do, here's a disclaimer. This is not an exhaustive treatment of the subject, for if it was, it would be a two-hour lecture just on one view, and I'm planning to give you three views. I am not 100% sure of which view is the best view, although I can certainly say I do lean towards one view, which I do, and you can disagree with me and agree with me if you want to, it is fine. Now that my disclaimer is over, you can teach your child what a disclaimer is when you watch commercials with pharmaceutical medicines, okay? (laughs) You're like, why are you laughing, mom? She'll explain to you. Okay, are you guys ready for this? So the first question is, who's the sons of God? So there's three views, three historical views. Uh, Again, I'm going to quickly fly through them. The first view is that of angels, okay? So there's the view that they say that the angels are the sons of God, and basically, God created angels and God placed them in the heavenly realms, and He gave them a job and He gave them a position. And instead of doing their job and instead of standing by their post, they abandoned their job, they abandoned their post, they looked at women and they saw, man, women are really beautiful. We want to marry them and have babies with them. And that's what they ended up doing and so then they're saying as a result of the angels being married to, to human women all of a sudden these superhumans came known as the Nephilim they were giants and you can kind of see where legends kind of come from kind of like the Titans if you ever heard of a, or Greek mythology and so where they get their evidence from is the book of Enoch which is not part of the Bible but it's a historical book that Jews kind of used, although they did not recognize it as scripture. And then in the New Testament, they go to, if you want to re- write down the scriptural reference, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, where it says, In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the task was being prepared. So in other words, they're saying, Peter tells us that Jesus went down into the dungeon where these angels were held in prison, waiting for God's judgment and proclaimed the gospel to them. So who were they? Angels. That's what they said. Here's my, here's the reason why I don't think it's the best view, And I'm going to make it real simple here. First of all, what's the first trick I taught you when studying the Bible? What, what do we need to look at? Context. Have we read about angels in the immediate context? No, we've not mentioned anything about angels. Uh, What have we read about? Is humans corrupt? God doesn't say angels are corrupt and humans are corrupt, but who does he say is corrupt? Humans, okay? The third one is this. Here's why I don't think it's a good view. There's no evidence that angels can have babies because are angels humans? No, they're not. They're celestial beings. They were created like me and you, but I'm a human. They are not. There's no evidence of that. And you're like, what about 1 Peter chapter 3? Who did Jesus die for? Did Jesus die for angels or for people? He died for people. So if he died for people, why would he tell the good news of what he's done to angels? That makes no sense, right? Wouldn't he tell the good news to people? okay that's why i don't think it's the best view so let's move on okay second view is this some people say it's human judges or rulers okay so many jewish interpreters believe that sons of gods were like the kings and the rulers of their time because in the part of the bible you read the word god and it does not necessarily mean divine being but rather what it can also mean a Ruler. So, for example, um, in the Bible, in Psalm 82, verse 6, it says this I said, You are gods, that's lowercase g. You're all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. So, in other words, in the Psalms, he's telling to the rulers, You are like gods. You are, in a sense, divine, but yet you're still human because you're going to die like a human. Also in the ancient near east they believed that their kings their rulers were divine beings so the egyptians saw pharaoh as what a god who represented god in a sense is divine and so the reason why you need to honor your kings is because they are divine and so that's what they believed and so they saw the nephilim not necessarily as a type of people like Asian, or Caucasian, or Hispanic, but rather they saw them as a class of people, like strong people, big people, people that are wealthy, people that are rich, people that rule over others. So they're saying these rulers took over. They were like the sons of God. I think it's a pretty good view, but what's the trick I taught you? What do we have to do in order to understand the passage? We have to look at context. Um, And you can later on read chapter 4 and chapter 5, but there's no mention of rulers or kings whatsoever. What's their mentioning of? A lineage of men that are born from Cain or that are born from Seth, which leads me to the third view. And I think this is the best view because of the context, okay, is this. People believe that the sons of God is the righteous lineage of Seth. They are the righteous lineage of Seth. In other words, sons of God can also be interpreted to as godly sons. And remember in chapter 5, uh, what was the lineage of Seth known for? Walking with God, worshipping God. In other words, they were in a sense righteous because it was from the lineage of Seth that this promised seed is going to come and deliver humanity and the idea of being sons of God or being godly men is kind of talked throughout scripture for example the nation of Israel who were the people of God the covenant community of God what were they also known for as the children of God right and then in the New Testament those who believe in Christ and are united with Christ what are we known as The children of God. The sons of God. So it's not like a strange concept. Like if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. You are a son and a daughter of God. You are inheriting the kingdom of God. And God is your father. So it's not unusual. So you're like, okay, what was happening? Remember we had two lineages. The lineage of Cain, good or bad. Bad. The lineage of Seth, good or bad? Good. So you had the sons of God, the righteous lineage, marrying the, son, the daughters of Cain, the unrighteous lineage. In other words, here you had these godly men who saw the daughters of Cain and they saw they were beautiful. And what did they wanted to do? They wanted to marry them and have babies with them. And if you think about it, in the Old Testament, God tells His people, His covenant community, who are they not allowed to marry? They're not allowed to marry outside of the covenant community. They're supposed to marry inside of the covenant community. Paul tells the church in Corinth, if you are a Christian, who must you marry? A Christian. In other words, he tells Christians, do not marry non-Christians why like why did god tell the israelites not to marry outside of the covenant community why does god tell christians not to marry non-christians because they will cause you to stumble because evil will spread and you will end up worshiping their gods their idols and pick up their bad habits and what did the nation of israel do they married those people and what happened they all abandoned god And this is what was happening. The righteous lineage of Seth now intermarried with the lineage of Cain. And this righteous lineage now becomes corrupted. They start to abandon God. They no longer walk with God the way they should walk with God because they're following in the footsteps of Cain. And the result is the Nephilim. Now, who's the Nephilim? I don't think a Nephilim is an ethnic group like Asian Caucasian Hispanic but it's a type of people and the reason why I say that is if it was an ethnic group what would have happened to the Nephilim after the flood they would have died right If they came before the flood, if it was an ethnic group, then the flood would have destroyed all of them. And yet we read in Numbers chapter 13, verse 13, after the flood about the Nephilim, where the spies went into the land, and they said, there's the Nephilim. So what they're doing is they're not describing a people group, but they're rather describing a type of people. Men who are big, men who are strong, men who are fierce warriors. Goliath was considered a... A Nephilim. And why was he considered a Nephilim? Because the guy was really big. I think he was like nine foot something. And his, and his, and his spear weighed like 150, 200 pounds. He was a mighty warrior. So in other words, the result of Seth marrying with with the daughters of Cain, you had these wicked men who were strong and powerful and ruled over one another and started all of this violence and all of this wickedness. And what does God say? This is not good. Man is corrupt. So, I gave you three views. Angels, rulers, the lineage of Seth. Let's say we don't know which really one it is. What's the main point of the passage? As people increase, does evil increase or decrease? It increases. And what does God say? Not good. Man is corrupt. Now, once we have that, now let's, let, let's see what, how the Lord responds as He sees the increase of people and He sees the increase of evil. Look at what God says. It says this, verse 5. When the Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together together with the animals, creatures that crawl and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them noah however found favor with the lord so real quick here i want to show you in the passage three ways that god responds to the increase of population and the increase of wickedness and i want to show you in verse five look at verse five look at how god responds the first thing we see if you're taking notes and it's going to be really simple the lord saw like what's the first thing you read in verse five when the lord saw Okay, that's the first response. The Lord saw. In other words, what we see in verse 5 is, what does the Lord do? He sees everything. And what did the Lord see? He saw the wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. In other words, the first thing we learn about God is that God sees everything. He sees every action. He sees every thought. He sees every inclination, every motive, every desire. The Lord sees everything. And notice what the Lord saw. He saw the inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. So he wasn't saying, I'm seeing their actions, even though he saw it. But what is he seeing? What's going on in their mind. The Lord saw that every part of the human mind is nothing but evil all the time. Now think about that statement here. God is looking at humanity and what does He say about humans? They are evil all the time. He's not saying, you know what? They have good moments. They have bad moments. No, what does the Lord see? That the inclination of the human mind, in other words, what their thoughts always gravitate towards, what they think always about, are evil. Now, there are times when we got to start applying the Bible to ourselves. If God said that about humanity back then, do you think humans have changed? You know what God sees today? God looks at humanity, and he looks at us because we're all humans, and he says that every inclination of the human mind is nothing but evil all the time. So the Lord sees. He sees what you do behind closed doors. He sees what you're thinking right now. He sees when you get angry. He sees your intentions when you think you're you're pretending to do a nice thing, but you're really not doing a nice thing. The Lord sees. Look at the second response. After the Lord saw everything, look at verse 6. The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and He was deeply grieved. So the second response to the increase of people and the increase of wickedness is if you're taking notes is that the Lord regretted, the Lord grieved. In other words, the wording that is used here is God's response to man's evil heart is that God's heart is filled with pain. Like it's this emotional anguish. Just like when you're really sad when, when, when you lost somebody you really loved and they died that is how God is feeling right now and God's response of grief over the making of humanity is not like he's not regretting in a sense of, of of what what he has done he's regretting in a sense what humans have done with God's good creation like he's not saying I made a mistake in making humans because that was part of God's plan everything that God makes is good right God knows everything He knew what was going to happen, but the the regret is of what man has made of it. But what we learn is, is God's attitude towards sin. Like sin impacts God in a sense. It grieves God. It makes Him really sad, which shows us God is not some robot that doesn't feel emotions, but God feels emotions just like me and you. But the problem is, our emotions are corrupted with evil, And God's emotions are pure and right. And acknowledging the emotions of God does not diminish, does not take away from God not changing. In other words, that like God does not change. Emotions does not impact the decisions that God makes. But yet, when God makes a decision, in a sense, there is emotion. Now, I, I need to uh, quickly talk about and then move on and show you an example with Jesus. But for example, uh, parents you're trying to teach your kid you need to make good decisions and you need to think through your decisions because what happens when you make emotional decisions is that a good thing no because you're not looking at the evidence you're so blinded by emotions you say things and do things that you're not supposed to be doing and the reason why is our emotions have been impacted by sin but when God makes an emotion when God makes a decision what is he making a decision on? Not on what his emotions are saying, but what the facts are saying and who he is and his character. But is emotion part of God? Yes. So, in other words, God is not like a robot. Yes, no, maybe, yeah. No, God feels. And when God sees what's going on, he's deeply grieved and the decision that he is making and executing judgment goes with his character but there's somehow emotions involved a good example is that of jesus um the shortest verse in the bible is in john 11 35 so here's your verse to memorize for for the day jesus wept okay jesus wept jesus who is god what did he do he wept so the question we have to ask ourselves is Well, why did Jesus weep? Well, the reason why Jesus wept is because one of his best friends are dead. He goes to their sisters Mary and Martha and they're really close and they're so sad and they're so overwhelmed by life and Jesus looks at it and he's just emotional. He is like, he just cries with them and then on top of it Jesus is crying but he's also angry because he sees death and the destruction of sin and the grip of death and what sin and death has done to his creation and the Bible says that Jesus is in anguish. It's almost this idea of a horse snorting. He's angry ready to tackle things but the question is okay why would Jesus weep why would Jesus be angry if he knows he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead and he knows he's gonna fix all of it and the sisters are gonna be happy and he's gonna go to the cross and he's gonna die for us and he's gonna defeat sin and death like he knows he's gonna do it but what does he still feel he still feels the emotion not the emotions that drives them to the cross, but rather the Father's will. But it's not an unemotional drive to the cross. It is filled with emotion. So when God sees the wickedness of man, He doesn't make an unemotional decision like an accountant who oversees the books of the human affairs, but he makes a personal decision out of sorrowful loss to judge and destroy the wicked generation. He's not like grinning and saying, oh, I can't wait to destroy all of them. But filled with sadness and tears as he's weeping as he executes judgment on them. So the Lord saw their wickedness. The Lord weeped, grieved over their wickedness. And look at the third response. The Lord said, look at verse 7. If you're taking notes, the Lord said, Then the Lord said, I will do what? I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. So in other words, when God speaks, what is God saying? Judgment will fall on them. What's the price for wickedness? Death, destruction. And that is what God says. Now we need to stop right here, and we're almost done. You guys are doing such a good job listening. We've learned that as there's more people, wickedness increases. And we've learned that what's true for them in their day is true for us today. So here's the big question here, okay? And this is what we need to ask ourselves. This is the most important question in, in our text. If man is corrupt all the time, every action, every thought, every inclination, every desire, every intention, if that is true and God sees all of it, and God grieves over it and then God says I will execute my judgment in it The biggest question is what hope do we have? Like if we are nothing but evil and God sees it and God is grieved by it and God has to act on it What hope do me, What hope do we have? We can't say well, we need to get better because what's the problem? We are corrupt and the word corrupt means we are Broken. But here's the hope. Look at verse 8. The hope is this. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. In other words, here's our hope. If you're taking notes, the hope is the Lord's favor. And you know what the word favor means? Grace. You know what the word grace and favor talks about? It indicates God's provision. It indicates God's approval. So, despite human wickedness that is widespread on the earth, every inclination of human mind is nothing but evil. It seems like there's no exceptions. Like that is what God is saying as he looks at humanity. So, which means Noah must be included in it. Because either God is over exaggerating or God missed Noah. But what does God say about humans? They're all corrupt. They're all evil all the time. But somehow the Lord turns to Noah and does not give him what he deserves. But he shows him favor. He shows him grace. On what basis, why does God show Noah grace? Well, for some of us, we say, well, look at verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries but what did we just read in verse 5? Like, didn't God just say that everyone is evil all the time? Why in verse 9 does it switch? Because of verse 8. What does verse 8 say? Noah found favor. Favor is God's grace. In other words, Noah found favor be- before God before he was declared righteous. And this is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, verse 7. It says, By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. In other words, God showed Noah grace. Grace. And not giving him what he deserves and executing me in judgment, but telling him, I'm going to destroy the world, but I'm going to spare your family. And what did Noah have to believe in? Noah had to believe that what God says is true, that it's actually going to happen. And he had to believe that God was going to deliver him. Like Noah did not believe in his ark building skills. We'll talk about it next week. Because I don't think an ark is going to make a flood like that. If the Titanic could not make it, I'm telling you now, an ark made of wood, go for wood and some tar is not going to make it. Okay? Sorry, I'm giving a little away. Let, Let me get back on. But Noah had to believe that what God said was true and had to believe that God is going to rescue him. He believed God by faith and God declared him righteous. And what we see from the very beginnings is this pattern of grace, faith, righteousness. If you want to write this this, pattern down, it's very important because I want to show you throughout Scripture. God's grace, God's initiating grace, God's provision for man, and man responds by believing in what God said to be true by faith. And God declares man to be righteous, not because of anything that he has done, but rather in believing in the provision of God. So, what is our hope? That if we are evil all the time and God sees it and is grieved by it, and God is going to rightfully execute his judgment upon us, what is our only hope? God's grace. And we see this, God's grace, in making a provision and saving us. And what was that provision? His Son Jesus. Who lived a life we could not live and died a death we were supposed to die. In other words, Jesus faced God's judgment and God's wrath that we should have faced. But Jesus took it on upon Himself and paid for it in full. And as He paid for it in full, He defeated sin, defeated death. Which means now we can be set free from the bondages of sin. But how must we respond to this provision of God? We must believe by faith in what? In ourselves? In our ability? No, but in God's provision in His Son, Jesus Christ. And by believing in Jesus, our sins are forgiven, and now we are declared righteous. In other words, we are in right standing with God. And this is really what we see as the gospel in Genesis chapter 6 God's way of saving humanity that is corrupt has not changed throughout of scripture has always been by the grace of God and his initiation and his provision and we receive that gift through faith and it is God that declares us righteous not on anything we have done but simply in receiving freely that what he has given us does everybody understand all right, last couple question, question I have for you is this, as we wrap it up. This is st- strange for us because we don't really see ourselves like this, and the world doesn't tell us to look at ourselves like this. But here's a question: I don't care how old you are, that you need to be able to answer. When you look at yourself, what do you see? Do you see somebody that is morally corrupt? Do you see somebody whose inclination is nothing but evil all the time and that there's no hope for you? Do you see how that goes against our culture? Because what does our culture tell us? You look in the mirror and you see yourself as perfect and beautiful and man's gift to humanity. But yet the reality of it is, when I look at myself in the mirror, I do not see somebody that's perfect, but I see somebody that is imperfect. And when you start seeing yourself like that, now you become a candidate of God's grace. Because now you start to see, I need God to provide and to intercede. And once you start seeing yourself like that, which only God can reveal to you through his Holy Spirit, you can respond to the offer of salvation he gives you in Jesus. And the only response is that of faith and who he is and what he has done. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for our kids and they were able to hear your word. Lord, now I pray that whatever they learned, Lord, can you take that word and just implant it deeply into their hearts, into their minds. Lord, can you help all of us to be reminded that we have been corrupted by evil, that there is Everything in our mind has been corrupted by evil all the time. And that we are in desperate need of you to intervene and to provide salvation. And help us to be reminded that you have provided salvation for us through your son Jesus. And help us to believe that by faith that what you've done is enough. And that you accept us as your sons and as your daughters adopted us into your family because of your initiating grace and your accomplishing grace and your sustaining grace. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.